Last September, on the 30th, we started preaching through the letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy. And this Sunday, June 30th, all these months later, we are going to wrap up 1 Timothy. So I'm maybe more excited than you. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about this. There's something special when a preacher starts a book and actually finishes the book. And uh, it, it's just, it's, it's fun for me to think that we'll have gone through this whole thing and that the Lord uh, in his word, in this particular letter, which is meant to shape the church, his, his, it's been so crucial in shaping my own heart and, and life and, and ministry. And, and I pray and trust the Lord is using it in our church as well to shape us. Um, about a month ago, I received a phone call from a, a lady in the network of churches that we belong to, the, the, net, the network, it's called the Karis Network, and this lady wanted to interview me um, because they had heard some of the blessings that had taken place here in this church over the last year, and they wanted to ask me some questions. They had heard that the church had grown a lot, and there were uh, more people attending now, and, and part of what uh, she wanted to, to figure out in her interview was, what did you do? How did you make that happen? And so I knew this interview was coming. She had requested it, and I was talking to some of the men here and telling them about this particular interview, and as we talked about that, I'm trying to figure out, well, what did we do? I mean, what, what did we what do we figure out? I mean, do we have any things we could tell this lady as to how we did a church revitalization? And ultimately, uh, the conclusion was, I don't know. Other than we have been doing our best to be faithful to the Word of God, to preach it, to let it stand as the authority over the church, to dictate all we do, submit to it, to proclaim it, to seek to protect it, to preserve it, to spread it. That's been our desire, and it turns out there's a lot of people who want that. And as we've done that, a lot of people are showing up, and they want to be a part of these things. And um, I just praise the Lord for that. We have done nothing creative. (laughs) If you want a creative pastor, you're in the wrong church. I'm not creative. I, I'm trying to just explain the text and to live by it. Uh, we've done nothing innovative. We haven't done anything new. Um, we simply are trying our best to be faithful, to understand uh, the Word of God and how it applies to our lives individually and as a church. And the Lord has been faithful to do exceedingly and abundantly what we could ever think of doing. Now, the, the fun thing is that we now get to, to finish this letter, and as it turns out, that our conviction to make the Word of God central and to proclaim it, our conviction that we need to be doing that, uh, as it turns out, that is really the heart of this letter to Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor, if you remember. He started in this church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus was not a great church. It, was, uh, it had a lot of issues. And Paul sent Timothy to this church in Ephesus to be there, to be faithful, to help it become uh, more and more healthy and centered on the truth. And Paul knew that the task was hard, and so he upheld Timothy by writing him, not one letter, but two, to encourage him, to give him instruction, and to enable him to help this church become healthy. You could say that the letter from Paul to Timothy, this first letter, is a revitalization letter. The church was a mess in Ephesus. It was dysfunctional. And Timothy had to go and help this church become healthy. And Paul wrote this whole letter to enable him to do that. Now when we come to the very end of the letter, we get two verses that function like a summary. We're, we're, we're getting like the last two verses that are kind of, uh, all right, I'm going to summarize all that I said in all the other chapters. I'm going to summarize them in a couple brief statements. Now, don't miss this. 
Uh, some preachers do this. I do this sometimes as well, where you, you preach the whole sermon, you go through all your points, and then the last conclusion is basically a summary of all the things you just said. You sometimes notice that preachers do that, and that's a way to try to reinforce the whole of what was already said. And now this is what Timothy has done in this letter, sorry, what Paul has done in this letter to Timothy. He's explained how the church ought to function. He's explained the priority of the church. And now at the very end of this letter, he's summarizing what he said in a couple brief, poignant statements. Read it with me, verse 20 of chapter 6. If you've got your Bibles, you can open up to chapter 6, verse 20. Where Paul says, in conclusion, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. That's a fantastic summary of all that he has been doing, all that he's been saying. Here's the point of all that this letter has been about. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. That is a two-verse summary of the entire letter. If you've been with us since September, you recognize that so much of what the letter is about and what it's for is encapsulated in those two, two verses. Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted you, and don't get caught up in all this other stuff that distracts from the gospel. Now what I want to do is this. I want to use these verses, I'm going to briefly explain them, but I want to use these verses to kind of go back and recap what he's summarizing. Okay, so he's, he's saying this as a summary, and I want to go back and make sure we understand why he's ca- encapsulating everything with these words, guard the deposit. I want to know, well, what, what did he mean? What was he referring to? And we can see that the entire letter is all about how the church is to guard the deposit. The whole church is how to guard this good deposit that we know to be the gospel. Let's look at these words in this verse, verse 20. Oh, Timothy, this is a very personal letter. It's a very personal part of the letter. He's singling out this guy by name, Timothy. Oh, Timothy, there's an urgency here. Oh, Timothy, guard. Let's look at that word guard. The idea here is watchful care. The idea is uh, protect Uh, This word is sometimes used to describe shepherds who watch over their sheep. This word is sometimes used to describe a guard who stands outside a prison cell to make sure that those who are in prison remain in prison. This word is used to describe how believers ought to be on guard against temptation that could creep into their lives. Guard. The idea is watchfulness. The idea is vigilance. The idea is be alert. The idea is protect. What he is called to do, Timothy, is guard. Be on guard. What is he to guard? Look at those next words. The deposit entrusted. It's one word in the Greek. The word it conveys the idea of a trust. Something that was given from one person to another that that person is meant to protect, guard, take care of. It's a stewardship that is being handed from one person to another. Clearly, in the context of this letter, he is referring to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. As you remember in 1 Timothy 3, the church is to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. The gospel truth is meant to be proclaimed and protected by the church. And Paul is writing now to Timothy, guard this, watch this, protect this. What? This entrusted deposit is given to you. You could think of a wealthy landowner giving a portion of his property to a steward whose responsibility is to take care of it, to guard it, to cultivate it, so that it becomes something worth watching over, taking care of. You don't lose it on your watch. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. To you, those last two words of that 
that sentence. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Timothy had been given a responsibility. You see the context of the letter. It starts, God is the Savior in heaven. God sent His Son to earth. Jesus, while on earth, taught the way of salvation, but not only taught, He accomplished salvation on behalf of anyone who would ever trust in Him. Jesus then commissioned His apostles. He sent the Spirit to empower the apostles. And what did the apostles do? In Acts, they went and planted churches by the spreading of the Gospel, the preaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The apostles and their churches were responsible for the advance of the truth to the nations. These apostles had been given the truth that came from God through Jesus Christ to them, to the churches. The churches advanced, the churches advanced, and to this day, through the ages, generation to generation, from one church to the next, from one healthy congregation passing it on to the new one, the new Christians growing up in their midst like a baton being passed through the ages. The gospel was passed from church to church, from generation to generation, years upon years go by until this very day and not only in this church but in churches across the world we are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and we now have this deposit entrusted to us just in the same way Timothy had it and in his lifetime he was faithful and in his lifetime he was to live for the church so that the church was promoting and proclaiming this truth So now, the good deposit of the gospel is ours. And we, having built on the faithfulness of generations before us, now hope to take this precious gospel message that we've received by faith that has saved us, and our desire is to pass it on to another generation. That's why we're here. What a glorious and weighty responsibility that every member of this church, you're taking responsibility not only to make sure the gospel is preached in this room and in in this generation, but to labor to create a foundation so that people generations from now who don't know our names look back fondly at this era in the life of the church and they're thankful that the gospel they believed was preserved and protected years in the past. I recently saw a building that looked like a church from the outside but had been recently converted into a mosque. You actually, if you search how frequently this is happening, you'd find that it's happening at an alarming rate. That churches and church buildings that were at one point used for the proclamation of the gospel are now being used to proclaim a false god that has no hope of salvation. Churches are being sold, buildings that is, and being used in the secular world. They're turning into museums. They're turning into track homes. They're turning into everything but churches. And my hope and prayer has been that our little plot of land that the Lord has given us here, we would be able to preserve the gospel, that we would be able to guard this deposit that has come from God through Jesus, from the apostles, through the ages to us, that we would be able to guard the deposit in this generation so that generations down the road, the gospel is still being preached here. And that our children, and Lord willing, our children's children can know that if they show up here, the gospel will be preached and the word will be prioritized. That's why we are here doing what we're doing. Which is why, again, the letter to Timothy is so important. Because that's all that the letter of Timothy is about. How do we make the church healthy so that it's able to proclaim and preserve the gospel not only in this generation but for the future? How can we be sure that this is going to be a pillar in support of the truth rather than it seems like some churches actually work against the truth by compromise? We want to be faithful. So First Timothy gives us 
a philosophy of ministry that, Lord willing, will be the ballast that allows us to remain true to the Word of God when the winds of culture rage. So we have six components that we feel are central to guarding the deposit, that the letter throughout these months, we've been able to unpack six components. Some of them will rush through more quickly than others. But let's start with our first component critical to any church revitalization. And let's be honest, in a church revitalization, you've talked, if you've been here for any amount of time, that church uh, revitalization kind of culminates in us becoming autonomous. Right now we're associated with a couple other churches that are financially supporting us and helping us with oversight until we get to the point where we're able to do those things ourselves. But let's be honest, the moment we become autonomous is not the end of church revitalization. Uh, we are always going to be in need of revitalization. Revitalization is the word that we use that talks about bringing back to life something. The nature of a church always is, is that we're drifting, always. It's the nature of a fallen heart to drift away from truth, especially the church, which is God's tool to bring the gospel to the nations. It's the bullseye of Satan's schemes. And so we're always in danger of drifting and therefore always in need of reform. Always a need to come back to the basics, to what do we need to do to make this church vital and living and healthy. This is, in a sense, a work that will never be done. What do we do? Let's start here. Here's number one. Here's the first of six components to a church that will be a living, healthy, revitalized church. Here's what we, we must do. Here's how we guard the good deposit entrusted to us. Here it is. First, first always clarify the gospel. Always clarify the gospel. Only God makes dead things alive. Only God can make dying churches healthy. God does this through the preaching of His Word. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. We want our church to be growing in faith, in faithfulness. If we want people who come in here and are not yet saved to be given the gift of faith and repentance and salvation, what do we do? We preach the gospel. We preach the word of God. We do not assume it. We do not assume that everyone knows it and everyone understands it, and therefore we can leave it unsaid. You know what happens if we do that, right? If we just assume the gospel, we assume that everyone here has got it down. We assume that everyone here is already believing it. We assume that it's known and cherished and loved. And so we don't feel any obligation to constantly and repeatedly clarify what it is. You know what happens? We lose it. We lose it in one generation. What is assumed in our generation will be lost in the next. That which we fight for, we must not assume that the other generation coming up understands the value of what we've fought for. And so we must always and repeatedly and continually clarify the gospel. This is what Timothy, the whole letter, is getting from Paul. It is gospel, gospel, gospel. It's all through it. He clarifies the gospel in chapter 1, verses 12 to 17, when Paul recounts his own conversion experience. He clarifies the gospel in chapter 2, verse 5, when he says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He's always clarifying the gospel and the implications of the gospel. In fact, I did a little experiment. Maybe you could do this when you get home. This would be fun. Uh, try this. Imagine you're on a desert island and you're all by yourself and you don't have any books, you don't have anything and suddenly there washes up on the shore a dilapidated Bible and all you, you get is uh, everything else is ripped to shreds and unreadable except for one portion of the Scripture and that is 1 Timothy. Imagine all you have is 1 Timothy. Could you, working from 1 Timothy, come to understand the Gospel? Go study that. See what it says about what salvation is. 
I did that for you. Now here's what I found. Here's what I found. I just said, well, I'm only going to stay in 1 Timothy. Here's what I found about the gospel. Listen to this. God is a father, chapter 1. God is the only God, chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's the only sovereign. He created everything. He gives life to all men, chapter 6. He created all things good to be received with thanksgiving by his children. That's chapter 4. He's the king of the ages, chapter 1. He's the king of kings and lord of lords, chapter 6. He's immortal. He lives forever. He never ages or changes. He is the living God chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 6. He's invisible. He has never been seen and cannot be seen. Chapter 6, he dwells in unapproachable light. Chapter 6, he deserves honor and glory and will rule forever and ever. That's chapter 6. This God who is ruling over everything, creator of all things, who is the sovereign over all, he reveals himself, listen to this, as God our Savior. Chapter 1. God, the Savior of all people, chapter 4. God, who desires all to be saved, chapter 2, verse 4. How has He chosen to save? Well, that's clear. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, chapter 2. Jesus, this mediator, gives mercy, chapter 1. He overflows with grace, chapter 1. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, chapter 1, verse 15. Paul himself, he said he was the chief of sinners, the worst of sinners, and God saved him. Why? To demonstrate the greatness of his patience toward those who would believe. Christ is our only hope, chapter 1. He is our Lord, chapter 1. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's all just from one letter in the Bible. One six-chapter letter, all this about God and His character, all this about Christ and how He redeems. Here's the reality, is that God, the sovereign, omnipotent, holy creator of all things, has sent His Son into the world to save sinners, the worst of sinners, the people who think they've sinned so badly they could never be saved. That's who God came for. He sent His Son to be a ransom for them. In other words, He sent His Son to pay the penalty for their sins because they could never pay for it themselves. Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered sin. He conquered Satan. He conquered death. And being the victorious and risen Savior, He offers free grace to anyone who would trust Him. And what you must do if you would be saved is to turn from your self-reliance, turn from your self-righteousness, turn from your sin, and bank your eternity on Jesus Christ. And listen, He loves to save sinners. He will never turn a sinner away who comes to Him with humility and repentance. He will receive Him, love Him, accept Him, redeem Him, and like Paul, transform Him so that the very enemy of God becomes the servant of God. That's the gospel. It is dripping all throughout 1 Timothy. I challenge you to go find that for yourself. Read through and see that God is a Savior. Christ is a Redeemer. The Lord is a God of grace who saves. Listen, friends, as long as we are here, we will labor if it requires late nights and early mornings, the blood, sweat, and tears are going to it, we will labor to clarify the gospel. We will not assume that everyone understands it, and we will not remain shallow about it. We will go deep to understand the greatness of these glories. One way we do that is we have membership classes where we make sure it's clarified all throughout the membership class. Try to make sure the people going through understand what it is and the implications of believing it. We'll have a membership interview before you're a member of the church. We'll, we'll talk with you through about what the gospel is, how it's impacted your life, so that every member here has a firm conviction of the truth of the gospel. Another thing we do this and try our best to be faithful to do this every Sunday is to preach the gospel so clearly that if you brought your unbelieving friend, you'd know they'd hear enough to be saved. I want that to be a rock-solid confidence that you have, that you know that if you want your friend to hear the gospel, they can come here any Sunday, any Sunday, and the gospel will be proclaimed, and they will be invited to trust in Christ. If you are an unbeliever, a non-Christian, and you've walked into this room, we are so happy you're here. We would love for you to come back again next Sunday. And we would right now invite you to partake in the same grace that we have all partaken in. 
That is Jesus Christ, the gift to us, the Savior of the world, and you by faith can trust him right now and be forgiven all your sins. That is the gospel. And nobody is in here because we think we've got it all figured out. We're here because of the opposite. We know we have it. We need a Savior not only to redeem us from hell, but a Savior to lead us and guide us each day. And He meets us in His Word. Secondly, as we aim to guard the deposit, we not only must play offense to proclaim the Gospel, but if you have been here and listened to Timothy in the letter here for a while, you know that we also got to play defense. That all throughout this letter, he's making sure that the church knows the danger of false teaching. So here's our second point to church revitalization or church health, is let's keep the gospel pure. Not only proclaim, but we protect. Not only on offense advancing it, but on defense protecting it. We are constantly called to be protecting the gospel from error. You saw in chapter 6, verse 14, a couple weeks ago, that we are called, Timothy was called, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want any blemish on the Gospel. We don't want any error to creep in. See, as much as we might be about proclaiming the Gospel and making sure it's clear, it is often the case that error creeps into the church. No matter how diligent we are to proclaim it positively and to explain it and to clarify, often what happens is error creeps in. Again, we are at the bullseye of Satan's schemes. And so the church is always under the threat of false teaching, which is why this letter repeatedly brings that up as an issue to be addressed. Uh, There's three ways that we protect the gospel. Let's note them real quick. One as I just mentioned, keep the gospel pure by identifying false teaching. The letter starts off that way. You can look back at chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Timothy, get in there, and there are people that are teaching false things Shut it down. Silence them. Don't let them go on. Don't let them continue propagating this error that's actually going to end up hurting the church. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. He's talking about danger of apostasy. Why do they depart from the faith? By, look at this, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. See, he's saying be aware there's this time coming. In fact, it's here, the later times, when people are going to depart from the faith. Why are they going to do that? Because there are going to be false teachers in the church, deceitful spirits. They become the mouthpieces for demons and they bring into the church error, damnable error that if believed will keep people from Christ. It's subtle. It's, it's often unnoticed. It often starts small. And so the church has to be vigilant to guard the doctrines of truth. Secondly, how do, you, how do you guard not only by identifying false teaching, but you keep the gospel pure by avoiding vain discussion. This is all throughout the letter. Again, in fact, go to our very text, chapter 6, verse 20 and 21. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Listen to this as if this is how to do it, or an aspect of how to guard, avoid irreverent babble. Babble. It's a great word to describe the type of talking that has no edification, doesn't build anyone up, doesn't contribute to the edification of the church. 
It's irreverent. He says, avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what's falsely called knowledge. Here is the second way we keep the gospel pure is avoid vain discussion. Avoid empty talk. Avoid this kind of false knowledge. He says, you, you, you claim this kind of understanding of all these things that are actually not true, actually not biblical. It could be any field of study. It could be any kind of extra outside of the Bible understanding that we take to be the most important field of knowledge. Because we think we're knowledgeable in one area of our lives, we think we're spiritually mature. And here he's saying this kind of vain discussion causes certain people to swerve from the faith. You ever seen kids sitting around, they don't know the parents are listening in, but the kids are talking about something they actually have no idea what they're talking about? They got, they got, they're trying to explain something. That'll happen often with my oldest daughter trying to explain something to my youngest daughter, and actually neither of them have any idea what they're talking about, but they're talking pretty confidently to each other, like, like this is the way it is. And that's sometimes how even church members can be, talking about things we don't really fully understand as if we're dogmatically right and we, we understand it and this, this, is, this is so important for everyone to get and we don't know what we're talking about. The Bible calls us to hold fast to the pure, unadulterated Word of God, not speculation, not bickering over words and theories, not vain, empty, meaningless blabber, Chapter 1, you can go back and see it. Certain persons, it says in verse 6, swerving from these have wandered into vain discussion. The way you talk to one another. What do you talk about? Is it vanity? Empty talk? Endless blabbering that builds no one up? Are we able to do that? Certain persons swerving from truth, they go into vain discussion. This is what happens sometimes. It's the second way we keep the gospel pure is by avoiding vain discussion. Here's a third way we keep the gospel pure is godly living. You've noticed that throughout the letter, haven't you? All throughout the letter, not only keep the gospel pure by teaching, it's also keep the gospel pure by living godly lives. You know that someone can preach one thing, but if their life goes another direction, what does that do? You don't want to listen to what they have to say. And so all through this letter, it's not only get the gospel right, but it's get your lives right. Get people in leadership who are trustworthy. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, all about the qualifications for elders. Chapter 4, verses 6 to 16. Timothy, if he's going to be an effective servant of Christ, needs to not only know his doctrine, but he has to have his life in order. Look at verse 16 of chapter 4. This is maybe the best summarized uh, way to say this point. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. You can't have one without the other. You can't get a teacher in here who's got this fantastic ability to stand up front and teach, but his life's a mess and he's compromised all over the place. No, you can't have someone who has a great life together, but he can't actually communicate anything. The preacher has to be someone who's got both. Keep a close watch on yourself. Make sure your life's in order and on the teaching, on the doctrine. And so we guard the doctrines of the gospel by putting people in leadership who live godly lives. So we are on offense. We preach the gospel. We got that? We're on defense. We clarify it when error comes in. We identify error. We make sure we're avoiding vain discussions. We don't get caught up in all the cultural discussions going on, like being tossed to and fro by the winds of the culture. We live godly lives so that the doctrine we preach is actually compelling. Here's a third way that we fight for the revitalization of our church all the time. Here's what it is. We pray together for people. Pray together for people. You you. You might wonder where we're getting this from, but it's actually right there in the center of the book. Look at chapter 2. Actually, I want to give you a little context. I'm going to give you chapter 1. Start in verse 18. Chapter 1, where Paul says to Timothy, This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance to the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. 
Spiritual ministry is a war. And he's got to wage the good warfare. Now, how do you do that? How are we going to make this happen, Timothy? Now, look at chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, I love when there's like a first of all. He's, he's showing there's an importance to this. There's a, there's a priority on this particular thing I'm about to say. I want first of all priority to be put here. First of all, look at this, verse 1 of chapter 2. Then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. I remember talking to someone uh, who had asked me, hey, what's, what's, what, what's a way that we build our church and we create this kind of culture of evangelism where we're all kind of eagerly working together for the advance of the gospel and, and the church is just excited to do that? And You know, you could point to some programs and you could maybe give some suggestions for church structure to make that happen. But what I pointed him to was 1 Timothy 2. I said, Pray. Pray evangelistically. Pray for all people as a church. You wonder maybe why your church doesn't love the lost. Do you ever pray as a church for the lost? Do you wonder why you don't have any affection to reach out to your neighbors? Well, are you praying for your neighbors? This is what, this is amazing to me. Isn't this fascinating? Paul writing to Timothy you got to be in this church. This church is a mess. There's a lot of dysfunction. You're going to be waging the warfare. First thing I want you to do, pray. Pray, and this is referring to a corporate time where the church prays together. Corporately, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. What kind of prayers are these, prayer, these prayers that they're praying? Look at verse 3. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. <laughs> he's praying, or he's teaching the church to pray evangelistically because there's one God and that one God desires all people everywhere to be saved. That's what it says. So pray for them. Gather as a church and pray. If you look at your bulletin, you'll note that we have a prayer of confession at times. And you'll notice that frequently we have what we call a prayer of supplication where we pray together for various specific peoples. Sometimes churches, sometimes missionaries. Sometimes we pray for opportunities with neighbors. We try to obey this text and pray for governing authorities. We didn't make that up. Like I said, I'm not creative enough to think of that stuff. That is just what the Bible tells churches to do. And so, while some churches might be concerned, well, that might be a little boring to sit there and pray for you know, an extended period of time about people we don't really know. Um, there might be some silence in the service that might you know, cause people to shuffle around and, and get a little antsy. And Well, let's be faithful to the Word. And if the Word is telling us, pray for all people and pray that they would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, well, that's what we're going to do. I believe that praying this way gets our hearts, it starts cultivating it. Our hearts which can be hard and dry when we start to together fervently pray for our neighbors and our coworkers and missionaries and lost people around the world. Our hearts begin to get cultivated and watered and we begin to grow in our love for the lost. A healthy church will be a praying church. Mark that. A healthy church will always be a praying church. We want to pray unashamedly. We want to pray so frequently and perhaps so often that people who don't know the Lord might feel a little uncomfortable listening to the way we pray and the frequency with which we pray. I hope we're a praying church. That's the third mark of a growing, revitalized church is that we will pray and we will pray corporately and we will pray evangelistically for the people God has called us to pray for. Here's our fourth. 
Here's our fourth. We're talking about the ways that this letter tells us to guard the good deposit. Guard the Gospel. We do so by clarifying, by protecting. We do so by praying. Now here's a surprising one that this letter has given us. How do we guard the good deposit of the Gospel? Fourth, let's love God's design for gender. Let's love God's design for gender. Maybe you didn't think this was a crucial piece of a church becoming healthy or a church being revitalized, but you will actually read the letter of Timothy and find that gender roles are distinctly laid out throughout this entire letter. Men are specifically given the task of the corporate prayers and leading them in chapter 2, verse 8. Women are given a different kind of attention in chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. We're told that in verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. That doesn't mean you can't make a peep in church. This is referring to the public teaching of God's Word, which is an authoritative act of leadership. That is to be reserved for men. That is reiterated in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, when the elders are described with the masculine pronoun, they are to be men in the church. In chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Timothy is being given these directions to relate with all these different demographics of people, and you got men that he should relate to a certain way, older women that he should relate to in a certain way, and younger men and younger women. In other words, it's clear here in the Scriptures that God's design for gender is meant to play out in the church and that it's a good and beautiful thing we ought not to be ashamed of. It's, it's all throughout. God created us male and female. Let's rejoice in that. The Bible never shies away from that, and neither should we. Now, friends, I just need to, to say this is especially critical in our day, isn't it? This is a hot-button issue. To say the things I just said could get a lot of people in a lot of trouble in some places, right? Experience that? Some of you will experience that if you haven't already in your workplace. To believe a biblical gender uh, roles will put you in hot water in some places, but we're going to stand in firm on what the Bible teaches on these things. We're going to make sure that we hold these faithfully and hold to the truth here. He, this is really, to be, to be clear, this is where our courage is going to be tested. This is where our courage to stand firm on the revealed Word of God is going to be tested. We could sit here and take a firm stance on premillennialism. We are a premillennial church. We will stand firm no matter what the culture says. <laughs> and no one's going to argue with us or care. Okay? We stand firm on this. It might ruffle some feathers. And yet this is an issue where courage to stand for Christ, is. this is where we're tested. To stand firm on issues that no controversies even come up is one thing. To stand in courageous faith on the Word of God in a in a place, in a time, in a season, in our country where this is a hot issue, this requires us to be men and women of courage who understand the Word of God and can defend it winsomely. So let's not waver on this issue. Many are. Many churches are. And we will hold to the biblical description of what men were given to do and what women were given to do will understand that God has created men and women in His image. Both men and women are created to have dignity and honor, to be participants in God's redemptive plan. Both are needed. Both are vital. But roles are different. And so to say that roles are different isn't to say that one is better than the other. That's not the discussion. And that's not at all what comes across in Scripture and especially in this letter to Timothy. But gender roles are described all throughout this letter. And I think if we want to begin down a path of compromise, it will start there. Because that's where the pressure's on. And so when the pressure's on, we're going to kind of dig our heels in and say, here's what we believe the Bible teaches. And we want to do so graciously, winsomely, but we want to be clear on these things. On the other side of it, I hope we never adopt some kind of gross, distorted complementarianism 
that's only complementarianism by name and not in reality, where you get the men who want to be in charge and they're domineering and they're abusive of their authority. They're overbearing. They don't love like Christ loved the church. They become tyrants. That's gross. We're not fighting for that at all. It is not appealing, nor it is what God describes leadership in the church to be. Leadership in the church is when the men take the responsibility to sacrifice their own for the good of others. To make sure everyone else blossoms under their authority. They are not to be takers and takers and takers because they're in some position of public leadership. They are to be the lowest. They are to be servants. And they are to use whatever influence and authority they have for the good and the blessing of others and not themselves. When complementarian is that way, it can be beautiful. And that is the biblical model. And so that's our fourth. Fifth. Fifth. To guard the deposit of the gospel. And this is somewhat related to our last point. We must appoint qualified leaders. This is what Paul was writing to Timothy. The bulk of the letter is describing what leadership's about. Timothy, you've got to lead this church. Here's what you need to know. You have to be able to appoint right leaders. Again, the qualifications in chapter 1 to, for the elders, verses 1 to 7, for deacons, verses 8 to 13, are very clear. Timothy himself is given all kinds of directions from chapter 4, verses 6 to 16. Here, Timothy is how you ought to live as a leader. It is crucial. This is a letter written from Paul who was a leader to Timothy who was a leader. And actually we see that Timothy was to be investing in raising up other leaders. A healthy church must have some sort of plan and some sort of ability to be raising up the next generation of leaders. That is a non-negotiable. Because eventually the leaders are all going to grow up and they're going to get old and they're going to die. And if no one's there to come in and fill the gap of leadership, what happens to the church? It's like sheep without a shepherd. There's no leadership in place, and so the church flatters. There's always, always an emphasis on developing leaders. And I just want to point this out real quick. This is primarily the responsibility of the leaders is to replace themselves. Primarily their responsibility, but let me make it clear, it's not only their responsibility. In other words... You who are coming to this church and you're a member of this church and you're interested in the health and growth of this church, you have a responsibility for this. To pray for the next generation of leaders. To invest in them. To invite them into your home and sit across the table from them and get to know them. To help them become all that God has wanted them to be. We don't know who the leaders are until they kind of rise to the surface in the context of these kinds of relationships. We hope our church gets to see the quality of our leaders in the lives they live among the body. And so we're always saying, hey members, spend time together. Be together. Be praying for one another. And if someone is beginning to show evidences of spiritual gifting where they might be a leader, your responsibility is to come alongside them and support them and pray for them and encourage them. So we appoint qualified leaders. We are doing these things all the time. We're proclaiming the gospel. We're defending the gospel from error. We're praying evangelistically. We're upholding God's design for gender. We're appointing qualified leaders. Why all of this is to guard the gospel. I want to ask a kind of an interesting question. How did Timothy do? I'm going to assume that Timothy was eager to do all the things that Paul told him to do. When he got this letter, he devoured it. He read it probably more than once. Wanted the contents to become part of his thinking, become part of his heart. He, he invested in the letter. I, I, I would not expect Timothy, for all the things that the Bible says about him, would be someone who would ignore the letter or who would ignore portions of the letter. No, I believe that he would take this. He would do his very best to implement all these things that we've been talking about. We also know, though, that Timothy was in a really hard situation, right? In fact, 
He's got to write a second letter, Paul does. He's got to write second Timothy because the situation's so dire. He's got to re, uh, re-emphasize some of the same things and give him some more stuff to be thinking about as a leader. Timothy needed a second letter from Paul because the situation in Ephesus was that hard. So I'm going to assume that Timothy was trying his best. But how did the church turn out? How, how did it do? Was he successful? What's interesting is that in the book of Revelation, when the resurrected, glorified Christ addresses the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, do you know which church he addresses? One of them is the church in Ephesus. Let's turn there. Jesus is addressing Timothy's church. That's remarkable. It makes me wonder if Jesus showed up here and addressed us, what would he say? Now, Timothy had the opportunity to be taught by an apostle to shepherd the church. This message from Jesus to the church in Ephesus comes about 30 years after the letter to Timothy was written. Timothy was written, the letter to Timothy was written about 62, 63 AD, the uh, revelation to John in, in John's vision. In Revelation came in the 90s A.D. And the first church that Jesus addresses is the church in Ephesus. How did Timothy do? Let's see Jesus' evaluation. Look at this one. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who walk or who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, Here's his, here's his message. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. That's a pretty good start. Apparently, Timothy had taken all Paul's directions to make sure that their church knew false doctrine when they saw it. They were able to, it says here, to to identify, to test false apostles. They knew when there was a false, false apostle and they could exclude them from influencing the church. They knew their doctrine. They were upholding in patient endurance whatever challenges they faced. They were testing them. They were finding them to be false. They were identifying false teachers. Uh, Timothy is filled with that in the letter. Verse 3, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. So they were doing a lot of good. Timothy had led them in endurance and to bear up for the gospel. They were fighting for the truth. And you have not grown weary. A lot to commend about this church in Ephesus. Timothy, well done. But look at this, verse 4. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Let that sink in. Jesus looks at the church. You got your doctrine right. You're able to identify false teachers. You're enduring. But you've lost your love. You've abandoned the love. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Friends, this ought to make us shudder a little bit as people who love doctrine, and we should, as people who want to proclaim it as we ought, as people who want to defend it. We want to build the church on Scripture and we have pretty strong convictions about what that means. And we, just like the church in Ephesus, are in danger of in the midst of the battle for all these truths to drift from actual love. And often, when this confrontation happens, we, we respond... Okay, we need to love better. Let's, let's create a new church program. 
Let's make sure uh, we do a little more of this, a little more of that. Let's, uh, let's make sure we spend more time at the parks or have more people over to our houses or um, a little more time at church together out to do it. Maybe we can add a greeting time. That'll make us love each other better. Uh, let's, let's add some more uh, structures to the church to facilitate these things. And what's Jesus' solution? You see this? Repent. If you find in your heart that you have all this love for truth, and you have all this conviction, and you can spot a false teacher from a mile away. And if you have not love, Jesus doesn't come and say, hey, change your calendar around a little bit, or show up to a little more church functions. He says, repent. Address the real issue. It's your heart. You don't love me like you should. And you don't love the people around you as you should. So repent. And listen, in repentance, there is grace and mercy. Like I said before, God would never turn away a humble sinner who comes to Him in repentance. You come to Him saying, Lord, I'm to love You. And the love I can offer You is so small compared to what You deserve. And I'm called to love these people. And the love I have within my heart to be able to give to them is so small in comparison to what You call me to. I confess my utter inability to love. And so, Father, help me to sacrificially give of myself to love. I repent. Always, listen, church, always the biggest question that you and I must face is the easiest question to dodge. Because you know the right answer. The biggest question before you as an individual and us as a church is do you love God? I'm not asking what kind of things you attend. Do you love Him? Like, Do you love your Lord? Or is your heart filled with a love for Jesus Christ for what He's done for you? There is no substitute for that. And where that lacks, no matter what doctrinal distinctives we get exactly right, where that lacks, we need to repent. In fact, this is actually woven into the letter to Timothy. If you go back into chapter 1, he starts it all off with this in verse 5. In chapter 1, he's writing him as if he's saying, all right, Timothy, I'm going to say all this stuff. This is all to guard the gospel. This is all to glorify God, to make sure we uphold the truth. But you need to understand this. Verse 5, chapter 1. The aim. Greek, that's telos. The goal, the ultimate purpose for our ministry. The aim of our charge is love. All that we are aiming for, working for, striving for, toiling for, agonizing for in the church is the production of love in the people of God. We want true love. And so the reason we fight for doctrine and all these distinctives, the reason we do all these things is because when the truth explodes in the heart and mind of someone and it opens up a vista of the grand glory of God, what do you do? You love Him. And then you love the people He's put in your church. And you love the people He's put in your neighborhood. And your heart overflows first with love for God and for love for people. The aim of our charge is love. Do you love God? Do you love Him? That's our, that's our last critical key to any church health, any church revitalization. The aim is love. Now, I know you don't, meet, you don't get, okay, well, I, uh, we're just supposed to love each other and doctrine has nothing to do. No, no, no. You, don't, you know we're not saying that. We're saying truth in love. Jesus came with grace and truth. The unsettling reality is it's possible to do a whole lot of church ministry and have not love. And if we have not love, what are we? We're empty. We're clanging symbol. We're worthless in terms of the fruit we're able to produce for God. 
And so we walk daily in repentance, daily in need of grace. And it is possible, friends, that in a generation, we will have the same doctrinal statement, the same doctrinal distinctives, the same church government, the same order of service, and yet be drifting in our heart from the love that we are to have for God and the love we are to have for people. And so when we're talking about preserving the gospel from generation to generation, it is a doctrinal battle, yes, but it is a battle for the heart of every single person here. It's a battle for the heart of the church. We must love or we are nothing. So here's how we guard the deposit. Here's how we guard the deposit entrusted to us. We present the gospel in truth. We protect it from error. We pray for the lost. We hold fast to God's design for gender. We appoint qualified leaders all for the purpose of cultivating true love in the hearts of our people for the glory of of God. Amen? Let's pray. And so, Lord, we confess these things are outside of our capacity. We cannot love. Your Word says love is from God. It does not originate within us. We cannot reach within ourselves and love better. We must cry out for it because it's a gift. And so we corporately confess now that we do not love you as we ought. We do not love one another as we ought. We do not cherish these precious truths as we ought. We confess that, and yet we know that you are a gracious God who provides for us. And so we ask by your Spirit to create in us hearts that love you better, that love one another more, that love these truths with all our hearts. We are utterly dependent upon you. So we look to you. We thank you that in Christ, you are willing and able to richly provide all that we ask for, like a good father providing for his children. And for that, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.